According to our guests, there are about 450 youth with mental health issues who are confined to Wisconsin state jails or detention centers on any given day. In this next hour, we ask our two guests to educate us on the problem of jailing the mentally ill in Dane County and their ideas for a better option than jail time. The speakers are Ronald Lampert, CEO of Journey Mental Health in Madison, and Jim Moser, Deputy Director of the Wisconsin Council on Children and Families. The talk took place on April 5, 2017, at the Capitol Lakes Retirement Center in Madison and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. There are study materials and handouts and Jim Moser's PowerPoint presentation on the League's website at lwvdanecounty.org. First, we hear from Kathy Fullen, co-chair of the League, who tells us of two local groups that are working on the issue of mental health and incarceration. Then Kathy introduces our two speakers. Two local groups have been working on the issue of mental health and incarceration that we're going to be talking about tonight. One is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Dane County, an advocacy organization for people with mental illness and their families. NAMI is working on decreasing the number of people with mental illness in jails. For more information, you can go to their website, which is namidanecounty.org. Moses is the Madison Chapter of Wisdom, a statewide faith-based organization that's working on reforms of the criminal justice system, including solitary confinement, mental health treatment, diversion, parole, and revocation to prison when no new crime has been committed. Moses has also been very active in the debate about replacing the Dane County Jail. We are very fortunate to have two extremely knowledgeable speakers this evening. Ronald Lampert has worked in the healthcare field for more than 30 years. Mr. Lampert assisted the Orleans Parish Mental Health System recover from Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and worked as the director of the Louisiana Behavioral Health Partnership. Prior to coming to Madison to assume the CEO position at Journey Mental Health Center, Mr. Lampert was the vice president of business development and strategy at Thresholds, which is a nonprofit mental health center in Chicago. Mr. Lampert was trained in emergency psychiatric care and crisis intervention at a county community health center in Ann Arbor, Michigan. His experience includes program development, integrated care models, and revenue development. Jim Moser has worked in juvenile justice for 42 years, serving in a number of positions with the Dane County Juvenile Court Program, including 16 years as the juvenile court administrator. In 2003, he served as the administrator for the state of Wisconsin Division of Juvenile Corrections. In the past two years, Jim has been the facilitator for two study groups developed by the Dane County Board, one focusing on alternatives to jail and one with a more specific focus on issues related to solitary confinement and the confinement and alternatives of individuals with mental health issues. Jim is currently the Deputy Director of the Wisconsin Council on Children and Families. Um, we as a community share values. Uh, we share values about uh, who we are, our compassion for our neighbors, our compassion for human life. And this is a human life issue. Um, the sheriff and others have given me different, uh, or I've heard different uh, percentages of the number of people incarcerated in the jail, uh, up to 40%, 60% at any given time. Um, because of the facility is old, and I completely support the renovation of the jail uh, here in Dane County. Um, there needs to be some change around that. The other point I'm going to make is about alternatives. Um, having traveled quite a bit through my career and having worked in South Carolina and then after leaving South Carolina, and revisiting the capital city of Columbia, um, they have come up with an alternative. Uh, their community is about the same size, they had the same issues, and um, I'm going to explain a little bit about what they've, they've done to correct those issues. And then I'm going to brag about my program. Uh, that's, that, that's where I get to really tell you about what Journey's doing in this realm. I think the question is, do we believe that people who have a mental illness require treatment and not incarceration? I think the answer everyone here would say yes, okay? 
they do need treatment. There are those who suffer from mental illness who become violent. There are those who suffer from mental illness who commit violent crimes, and they enter the judicial system. But there is a whole nother group of people who suffer from a severe and persistent mental illness who can be diverted from the jail through different programs that I'll explain. This, this comes to the core of our values. If you look at some of the statistics, uh, you can look up Dane County Jail uh, reports. There's uh, very thorough reports on the demographics of the people who are incarcerated in our county jail. Um, there's a group of people who I call like um, poor access to health care or there's barriers to health care. Well, there's a group of people that are completely disenfranchised from health care. They're poor. They're people of color. They are living in low economic areas or they're living in rural areas and they suffer from a severe mental illness. It is my mission, it is Journey's mission, to get to those people and offer healthcare services and mental health services. Journey provides community-based mental health care. We have teams like ACT, we have teams like community treatment alternatives for the judicial system which I'll talk about. So I wanna talk a bit about the alternatives that are out there. There's two uh, discussions going on in our community that I've heard about. I'm not intimately involved in either one of them yet. Hopefully I will be. One is through the um, advocacy and through the need of renovating our, our jail uh, to make part of the jail a psychiatric response center. I'm not sure that that, in fact, I know that doing that uh, will bring people back to the jail uh, for psychiatric services, which is what we want to prevent. But a bigger component of that is the stigma attached to it. And this is what NAMI and what I, what people in the mental health feel strongly about is that we want to move psychiatric services out of the jail. We want to move it back into the community. And there's, way, there's different ways in doing that. So one discussion is about during the renovation of the jail, which, Sheriff, I hope happens real soon for you. Um, it's, it, it needs to be more humane even if there isn't a, quote, psychiatric unit in the jail. It needs to be humane for everyone who goes to the jail, and I, I support the, the renovation. The stigma of people going into the jail with a severe mental illness, it actually acts not only to stigmatize them in the criminal justice system as being mentally ill, but also it stigmatizes them and creates a barrier for them to enter what we call recovery, where they become active participants they have free will, they have their own volition to make decisions about their recovery, and we get them employed, which is the ultimate goal for people who have a severe mental illness, to live independently, to be a contributing member of our community, which we do at Journey very well. So there are two facilities. One is in Pima County, Arizona. It's a huge facility, it is very big. They have uh, a large facility, you enter it, children and adolescents go one way, adults go another way, and then there's a drive up for police and sheriff deputies to bring people who would have otherwise gone to jail. But another program, which I think fits more with what we are doing, is in Columbia, South Carolina. In Columbia, they built a community mental health crisis response outpatient center. It's smaller. It has a drive up for the police to bring the person who is suffering a mental health crisis right up to the side of the building. They walk in, there are six treatment rooms right there, and psychiatry, 
nurse practitioners, social workers, counselors, uh, ready to see that person uh, and hopefully diffuse the crisis. That not only helps the jail, but it also helps the emergency rooms. When I've talked, when I went to visit with them, the, the director of uh, Richland County Community Mental Health, Dr. Bank, is a good friend of mine. He's also the head of the Department of Mental Health for uh, the state of South Carolina. He's the medical director for the state of South Carolina. One of the things that was key in making it successful was the community collaboration. The sheriff uh, lot in Richland County um, has a private um, for-profit company doing psychiatric services in the jail. This is what we have in Dane County. The Community Mental Health Center collaborates very well and closely with that, uh, with that group to when people are incarcerated, they're transitioned back into the community uh, through what we call the crisis or the um, uh, community treatment program at Journey, which I'll talk about in a minute. The other collaborators in there are the hospitals and the folks who run the homeless shelters, because a lot of the uh, people who have a severe mental illness who wind up in the county jail there come from or are causing some disruption at the uh, local homeless shelters. So the key for that type of response, and this is really what I would recommend, is an off-site program, crisis response facility, where police and deputies can go and bring people with a severe mental illness to be assessed outside of a hospital if possible and outside of the jail if possible. And the facilities can be set up so that they're secure that way. I'm gonna talk just a brief bit about our, our program and its successes. Uh, community Treatment Alternatives, it's located on Fordham Avenue, but most of our work is done in the community where people live. Um, in this program, uh, we've come, we've tried to measure, or we do measure what our outcomes are. We have a 73% reduction in jail days. We have a 80% reduction in hospitalizations for the population, 80%. That's huge. We have 35% of the people who go through our program wind up competitively employed and independent. 85%, oh, they may not be employed, but 85% because maybe they're on disability, 85% of those are living independently in our community. These are folks that have come through our program and are in our community now. And this is the most important piece of our outcomes for us, I think. Once a person has gone through our program and they have finished their legal obligations, they're off probation, they've been discharged from the courts, they're no longer supervised, 89% of the clients we see stay with us. Okay, so almost 90% of the people that we see and help go into the community become independent, working, their psychiatric uh, disability or mental illness is stabilized. 89% are staying and continuing their recovery program. So the piece for me is not one thing. It's not putting a psychiatric unit in the jail. It's not just creating a crisis response team. It's not just the journey program that's so successful. It's everything. It's all of these components, including the advocacy groups, NAMI, Lindsay Walsh here. There she is, head of Madison's NAMI. It's the uh, church groups. It's the homeless shelters. It's the police. Uh, sheriff's department, uh, hospitals, especially the hospitals need to be involved in this, uh, in this particular endeavor to 
cure the ill of putting people with a severe and persistent mental illness in our jails. One last thing I'd like to um, do a little advocacy for since the sheriff is here is that we have a program with the Madison Police Department that we funded ourselves for a year and now um, the county has uh, given us some more funding to add another person, person and a half into the Madison Police Department where the police, uh, they have a team um, that is trained in um, crisis intervention. It's a certification that police can get and I'd like, I would like to have the same program with the Sheriff's Department and other local police departments within the county. It's not just Madison. There's Sun Prairie, there's uh, a Fitchburg. Uh, we could all benefit from having social workers embedded with the police departments and the Sheriff's Department. Uh, it's a program that works. We've had good outcomes. Uh, our social worker that's been embedded for a year with um, the Madison Police Department has shown great results in diverting people away from the criminal justice system and getting them into the help that they need uh, for their mental illness. With that, I will close and let my colleague take over. You're listening to Jailing the Mentally Ill with speakers Ronald Lampert, CEO and President of Journey Mental Health Services in Madison, and Jim Moser, Deputy Director of Wisconsin Council on Children and Families. You know, what I know is you know, there's too many individual mental health issues in jails, in our prisons, uh, in many other places in our community that are not supportive, are, are not helping them in any, in any fashion and do the kinds of transition independence and hopefully support their independence the way we would want. We know that many individuals with mental health issues have additional collateral issues, whether it's substance abuse, you know, unemployment, all the other kinds of things that can go with that. That Dane County, and this goes back, so I started working in Dane County in 1974. Um, and again, most of my work has been in the juvenile justice world. So I'm less familiar with the adult side, but I know for many years Dane County was had, had been sort of a leader on mental health and community mental health. And I'm not so sure we've kept pace and kept up with that. Um, I'm not being critical, it's just part of it's I don't know, and part of it I know is that when I hear things like what's done in Columbia, South Carolina, or other parts of the country that have continued to move forward, I'm not so sure we haven't plateaued and slipped back in some ways. Um, I also know we need to do a lot more to engage the notion of authentic voices individuals and families and caretakers of individuals who have mental health issues need to be at the table and all the tables when some of these decisions and discussions are happening. So um, without that voice, I know for me it's easy for us for professional world to sort of think we know what everybody needs, but boy, when you really hear it directly, it sometimes puts us back on the right track to hear, it, to hear from individuals who are really deeply affected. The other part of the group that I worked on in particular was around solitary confinement. And certainly you've been seeing more and more concern and consensus around the impact of solitary confinement, not only for individuals with mental health issues, but that certainly exacerbates those problems. So uh, it's an issue for, for other inmates as well. I don't consider myself, I don't work and didn't work day to day in sort of the mental health world. Um, again, I had the opportunity to facilitate some things and I learned a lot from the folks in Moses and NAMI and it was great to have them involved in the work that we did. Uh, folks like Ron and the, you know, his staff are much more intimately involved day to day on what's happening and many of you I'm sure know a lot more about it than I do. I don't, I'm not as, I, since again I don't work in it day to day, I don't keep up with it as much, probably certainly as Ron does and many of you as well. I don't, we don't know what the impact of state and federal policies are going to be, whether it's around funding or access to services or, you know, Medicaid or, you know, all the kinds of decisions that are going to be made going forward that are going to have some impact on the lives of many in our community, not only individuals with mental health issues, but, uh, but everyone. We have seen some, I guess, positive signs in the governor's budget, and, you know, around mental health supports and services, but I think we have a long way to go and sort of an uncertain future. 
about how that's all going to happen. And I don't know what's going to happen with the jail. No one does. Um, but certainly it's, it's in our world now, and we're going to be continuing to face that issue here in Dane County going forward. So in May of 2015, the county board uh, adopted a resolution that created a number of work groups. The one in particular that I was able to work with and learn from was the group on mental health, solitary confinement, and incarceration, which I thought was a fairly broad topic. Um, so I thought, well, can I be in the, like, the length of stay one or the other one? Because they seemed a little more discreet. So this got pretty broad, but again, with the help of folks in the community, I think, came out with some things that made sense to the board, and, and I know the board has invested in some of those things along the way. We met a bunch over the summer of 15, came back with some recommendations. We were charged to come back with some that cost money and some that didn't cost money. It was, so it was kind of an interesting task going forward. So I think about this stuff in a way, not as, not again, not as much on a day-to-day -day basis, but from a system point of view, and you, can, and you kind of even heard it in what Ron alluded to in terms of sort of, you know, A, B, C, well, it's really all of the above kind of approach. So thinking about what are the kinds of systemic way, things we need to think about when a framework for thinking about services for individuals with mental health issues. And we're really talking about being able to identify individuals timely in the community. You know, there's no doubt after, after participating in that group and listening and hearing, there's no doubt in anyone's mind, I don't think, that the best way to deal with this is to keep people out of jail in the first place as much as we can. And that's everything back from, from being much more accessible in terms of working with people in the community, uh, being able to identify issues and address them early on and uh, resolve them short of the kinds of problems that result in them ending up in our confinement system. Diversion, certainly talk about uh, treatment and dispositional alternatives. You know, once individuals are in the system, you know, we need to do a much better job and think about, okay, what's, what are the kinds of services that can be provided beyond sort of the traditional correctional kinds of mindset services that come up that really address those needs. And collaboration, Ron alluded to that as well. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of great work going on in Dane County. There's a lot of individuals involved. I think around funding and some other things, there's room for continued work and improvement, but there's no doubt that we have to think of this as a, as a community and a system uh, and not expect any one component of our structure or system to, to solve it and, and, and also that uh, they need to be working in sort of sync with each other going forward. Flexible and integrated funding is critical. Um, that can be a challenge both from all kinds of sectors, whether it's the private sort of health system structure. Certainly one of the things we I heard a lot about in that discussion was, you know, a lot we do have a lot invested and there's a lot of individuals in our community. Uh, we, we, often, we sometimes think about the individuals who are on, needs county funded services or um, uh, programs that are funded through the public tax structure in some way, but there's a whole bunch of folks out in the community, probably the majority, who are receive their whatever access to services they have through their private providers in, in one way or another. So the networks and funding structures that serve them have to be involved in this process as well and come to the table. Continuity of care, um, simply, you know, we need to be in a very strategic way, making sure we're working with an individual and a family. Clearly, collaboration with the jail as individuals come in and then are in the jail and then are re-entering the community, there has to be a really clear and great communication to make sure that's, that's done, done well. Uh, information sharing, which can be problematic to some degree at times, and, but also we need to find ways, so we need to find ways to make sure that that, that, we're, that everybody working with individuals has that right access to the right information, but doesn't have access to information they, they shouldn't have, and or that, that inappropriately labels someone in a way that can actually in the long run be harmful. As I mentioned authentic voices, individuals mental, with mental illness, mental health issues uh, need to be involved in the process and, and discussions, and then we need to be looking at what's working in other places 
as well as what the research says about what works. So if you think about, so I think about a framework to then build on, and these kinds of things come into play, and you heard Ron talk about, for example, whether it's the South Carolina or the Pima County system, if they're working, we should be learning from them. The other thing that came out in the discussions, and this was one I really list, the, these are really things that I heard people in our work group say in one way or another along the, along the way that, that make it in some ways a challenge going forward. Um, the deinstitutionalization of individuals from hospitalization towards community-based services was the right direction, but have we necessarily then provided this, this stuff in the community? Savings from deinstitutionalization have not been fully reinvested in our community, has not kept pace, and the public funding has not kept pace with the need for services, both in terms of, I think, uh, qual quality and quantity of services available for individuals. So when you hear about the great results from the Community Treatment Alternatives Program, and Ron, that's serving how many clients at a time? Yeah, so they add 15 slots this year, but it's nowhere near probably, I'm sure, what is necessary to really meet the need and demand. You're listening to Jailing the Mentally Ill with speakers Ronald Lampert, CEO and President of Journey Mental Health Services in Madison, and Jim Moser, Deputy Director of Wisconsin Council on Children and Families. Another charge to our work group, uh, and really to all the work groups in 2015, was around equity and understanding that that we have significant disparities in who's in the jail and uh, racial equity in particular, and trying to, trying to discuss for sure, are there aspects to what we do and how we go forward that, that can promote greater equity and reduce disparities? And so oftentimes, and this again came out of the work group, some of the more traditional services may not be viewed as being culturally relevant individuals who have mental health concerns and families. We need to find ways to get out in the community more through case management and outreach to, uh, and, and from a culturally competent perspective, uh, reach out more. You know, we all face the issue of public perceptions. We talked about health. You know, how do people view mental health issues and mental health wellness? So, that, so that's true of really kind of the whole community. So then the question is, so how does this translate into where we're at in the jail and what are some of the other challenges that are operating within the jail or confinement system? And, you know, currently there's limited options for housing individuals with mental health issues in the right way. Um, certainly in the old, I'll call it now the ancient jail and the, what's, what's not necessarily the new jail either anymore. Of course, I think of it as still the new jail, but that's how, that's how it shows up, time flies, it's what, 94? So almost 25 years we're coming up on. And, and jail structures many years ago were certainly designed in ways that, that were not great for supervision of any inmates, let alone, let, let alone individuals with mental health issues. So that's, it's clearly an issue that has to be resolved and worked on. Um, staff and, and individuals working in the jail uh, and I know this is something the sheriff and, and his staff are, are working on and concerned about, or you know, really being able to keep get training into the individuals who are interacting with inmates in a way, recognizes the trauma and issues they're facing, and then responds to them appropriately and reduces some of the negative things that can happen in a facility when not dealt with correctly. Uh, staff diversity came up certainly as an issue again, around issues of uh, thinking about culture and equity, and programming space. I mean, I, I think uh, even the new jail has struggles with sort of legit, you know, programming space and capacity to work with all individuals, but including those with individuals with mental health issues. So I'm used to working in a juvenile area a system where that's a really a primary aspect of good jail, of good construction of a facility. I don't think that was always the case as people thought about building adult jails. As they think about what's the percentage of individuals in confinement with mental health issues, I would tell you in the juvenile world, we're talking about overall less, way less numbers, but the percentages are equally of concern, if not even more concerning. So on a given day in Wisconsin, there's about 400 
youth confined, maybe 450 confined. About half of those are in the state juvenile correctional institution, and about half are in the 12 or 13 detention centers around the state that are designed more for short-term confinement pending court and that kind of thing. As compared to, for example, 22,000 inmates in prison daily today in the jail. Yeah, so 780. So you can see that the volume is considerably lower, but the percentage of kids who have mental health issues that are in one form of confinement, whether it's the short-term local places or especially in the correctional facility, again, can be as high as you know, 50, 60, 70%. Um, and, and that's all wrapped up in a lot of, again, similar behavior issues that are, that are at play, but a system that in some ways is structured differently to hopefully deal better with that uh, as possible. You're listening to Jailing the Mentally Ill with speakers Ronald Lampert, CEO and President of Journey Mental Health Services in Madison, and Jim Moser, Deputy Director of Wisconsin Council on Children and Families. Recommendations that came out of the work group, remodel or renovate significant portions of the jail, and I think that was our way of saying a lot of it. (laughs) Uh, We couldn't at the time, and that of course is still going on, jump into the discussion or debate about new jail or not new jail, but really saying that there's so many, there's so many parts of the jail that really need work, everything from the sort of basic safety needs to the kinds of tr- uh, programming and service needs, that, especially of this population. So it's not, an ins- it's not an insignificant approach to talk about finding ways to renovate, remodel, and perhaps build in some way to deal with that. Uh, we did talk about a crisis assessment and resource center possibly including some short-term residential capacity. And Ron, the the Columbia, was there, I assume there was some, was there residential capacity? They had had some beds that they could stay and treat the person with for 24, 48 hours and stabilize. Right, so so some capacity to have someone stay for 24, 48, 72 hours, for example. Again, a resource for law enforcement to take someone rather than being faced with the choice of jail or uh, or, tr- or trying to get them, in our case, up to uh, uh, Winnebago. Uh, significant challenge for our state for law enforcement. Mobile crisis response teams and increasing, you know, Ron touched on that a little bit with the partnership with Madison Police, also the other services that, that are provided through Journey, of going out into the community and being able to respond to crises as they occur. Uh, I've worked with a program Wraparound Milwaukee, which has a mobile urgent treatment team, which has had significant success in the community. The unfortunate acronym for that is MUT. But they've been really successful at addressing all kinds of issues in the community and and sort of increasing both their reach in terms of of not waiting until things get so bad. Uh, Outreach and more culturally relevant and family-centered outreach and engagement services. We need to, again, I think the group really felt we need to find ways to be in the community, in many ways be in the neighborhoods where individuals are and try and develop relationships in that way so that individuals who are having issues or concerns, whether it's a family member with a concern or an individual with a concern, are able to approach someone and find someone who, can inter- who they can interact with, who can address things before, again, before they get to the point where there are, where there are uh, issues that require law enforcement. So in Dane, for example, and a lot of our discussion, some of the discussion was around uh, the joining forces for families model in Dane and the sort of the uh, social work, child welfare side where we have 18 or so joining forces for family sites out in the community, sort of neighborhood social workers uh, who are able to interact with individuals in the community. And is there some way to use that model or build on that? I mentioned culturally relevant staff, really all through the system, but especially those that are interacting on a treatment basis with families, with uh, individuals, uh, with mental health issues, uh, supporting reentry, making sure that we've got quality staff and uh, programs like the ones at Journey, for example. Um, Culturally diverse workforce, you see that again pop up and 
uh, around solitary confinement, it was really the strong recommendation of trying to really set a goal to reduce the use of solitary, essentially eliminate the use of solitary confinement for individuals with mental health issues. Not an easy task, but, but, a, but, a, but a target. Uh, knowing that, and, and, our, and recommend, some recommendations around the need to collect data and set some benchmarks or some uh, performance standards that lead towards that. So uh, can we find a way to have that as a goal and move towards that in time, over time. Certainly the staffing and physical plant structure of the jail makes that a significant challenge. That doesn't mean nothing can be done, but, but without setting a sort of a high bar, the concern of the group was we would sort of accept, be too willing for the, for the community to accept less than what we really wanted to get at. This is an important one around leadership, and Ron kind of alluded to it again when he talked about Columbia, I think, South Carolina. There was really a sense that there's nobody, uh, I shouldn't say nobody, but sort of who's driving the train in this and who's really pushing, bringing community together, the private sector, hospitals, uh, providers, um, the jail folks, you know, who, uh, consumers, who is really committed to bringing people together to say we can create the kinds of future for our community that we want, knowing that it would take a very concerted, powerful, strong, persistent leadership to make that happen. So like any other system, we tend to operate a little bit too much in our individual silos, and we really wanted to recommend that the county executive in some way bring folks together because we all share in both the, both the benefits of doing it right and some of the downsides if we don't do it right. So you mentioned a hospital emergency rooms. You know, can we get hospitals and, and providers involved in a way that says, you know, it's to their benefit as well? And, and especially can they kick in some dollars to help make it work? This was an interesting one. We've a lot of... Uh, there's been movement in many ways in our system towards specialty courts, for instance. Um, so we have some judges who work in, you know, like OWI or drug court. Um, there has been a history or sort of a spotted history in our community of individuals, for example, within district attorney's office who had developed some uh, expertise around mental health issues. And, and I think the folks in the work group, and again, I'm not in it day to day, but I really trust their judgment, that it really takes somebody, and many people for him, perhaps, who have really a good understanding of, of issues, mental health issues and how those are impacting behavior and how we should not be letting individuals linger in the jail and how can we um, push the right buttons and find the right resources in the community and how can we adjust our own are the processes within the, within the justice system to keep cases moving. You know, to have an individual with mental health issue end up in the jail and then just sort of linger. Oftentimes it's for lack of a placement or the system is just kind of working under its own timelines and momentum. So I know there's discussion around this going on, but we really, judges, we need to really find, we really need to develop that expertise and sensitivity in the people who are making day-to-day -day decisions uh, about how to work best with individuals with mental health issues. The Criminal Justice Council is meant to be an ongoing collaboration group. Um, and uh, so one of the recommendations was to really spin off a work group of some kind, involve people in the community, uh, NAMI and Moses and other folks, and, and really begin to work on that under the auspices of the Criminal Justice Council, in particular around expediting cases of individuals who end up in the system. Uh, the last, this was a universal one for all groups around data collection. That we really don't have a system in place to gather good information about individuals and track them through the system. And there's the staffing issue involved, there's the, there's the data capacity. The sheriff's staff do a great job of generating data at times when you need it, but it's not, it's not always very easy to get at. It can be time consuming and there's not the kind of cross-system capacity to share information and data that would allow us to say to set the kind of benchmarks 
and performance-based goals that we really want to try and target. So, you know, we had great, again, great support from the, from the sheriff's office and clerk's office in gathering data where we could, but it wasn't easy to do. So I'm going to stop there. Thank you. You're listening to Jailing the Mentally Ill with speakers Ronald Lampert, CEO and President of Journey Mental Health Services in Madison, and Jim Moser, Deputy Director of Wisconsin Council on Children and Families. Now, a discussion with the audience. Let me, uh, let me just give a couple of data points to support uh, what my colleague has said here. Um, in terms of the population of Dane County, if we just look at the population that's in 1998, it was 420,208. In 2015, it's 522,990. I guess that's from the uh, census. So there was a 24.5% increase. For our pro, all of our programs, you alluded to our programs, all of our community support programs where we treat uh, the, those folks who have severe and persistent mental illness, in 98, we had 483 slots. So we were able to treat 483 individuals. In 15, 2015, we had 525. So the, um, the access or the openness or increase number of treatment available slots for, the, for those who suffer from a severe and persistent mental illness has not kept up with our population growth. Now, it would mean that we would need 118 new slots today. Um, and what we got funded for were 15. So we're about 113 or so, or probably more because the census came out in uh, 15 uh, slots for community-based diversion programs and treatment of the, those folks who have a severe and persistent mental illness. The other piece for your discussions, and I think this is where some advocacy and some community discussion needs to happen. I have all through my career been an advocate for healthcare dollars staying within healthcare so that we can reinvest in prevention programs, response programs, and crisis intervention programs, especially for those that I described earlier as the most disenfranchised from our healthcare system. Not poor access, not barriers to access, no access. So every year for about the last 12 to 15 years, there has been a budgetary surplus within Dane County in human services. To the, to the tune of about $6 million a year, okay? Every year for the last 12 to 15 years, that $6 million has not been redirected to investing in our healthcare delivery system, the treatment of mental illness, and the treatment of addictions. That $6 million has been put into the general fund. So we have about, and this is from County Board Supervisor Heidi Wegelneider. More than $60 million has been returned to human services to the general fund over the last 12 to 15 years. So that money could be reinvested in mental health services to help our sheriff, to help our police department, to help our community mental health centers, to help develop more addiction treatment services, which is, as we know, an epidemic, an epidemic proportions. So there's an issue that needs to be brought up. We can talk about collaboration. We can talk about new programs. We can talk about the needs. We're 113 slots short, according to our population, for community support programming. But we need to really talk about, honestly and openly, about the reinvestment of healthcare dollars that go into the general fund that should be redirected and reinvested in our community for these services that we're talking about today, including the mental, illness, mentally, mental health population uh, treated in our jail. We have one house, 
One house, six beds, seven beds. It's called recovery house for people who are tra in transition. They've had a mental health crisis. They don't have stable housing. We know there's a lack of affordable housing, especially those folks on disability, those people with a severe and persistent mental illness. That, bed, that, that house is always full, okay? Um, we have six beds that's always full. So uh, I have a great quote from a colleague of mine. I'll share it with you. Somebody who has a mental illness has a crisis. They go to the jail. They go to the hospital. They spend 30 days in either place. And they're given 30 days of medication. And the question is, what good is it if they don't have a place to put it? Right? So if there's not stable housing, and we know this, and nonprofits I've worked with all over the country are advocating for housing. One of the interesting developments over the last five years, I've worked with insurance companies to show that the social dividend of them paying for Crisis, crisis housing actually benefits them because we can stabilize them when they're in a stable housing arrangement. So I've actually gotten insurance companies, private, you know, Aetna, Cigna, to pay for an emergency housing rental for two or three months while we stabilize them because it keeps them out of the hospital. If they pay us total $1,500 a month, and this person was going in and out of the hospital every other month, they're saving thousands, 3,000, 4,000, or even more dollars, depending on if they have a comorbid medical condition, just on paying for the crisis housing piece. So there's a tremendous return on investment by having stable housing, and I thank you for bringing that issue up. Well, I think that, that that's reflected, I think, in what at least our group talked a lot about the, or in one of the recommendations around how can we get all those folks to the table and, and believe that this is a community, pot, you know, it's that blended funding kind of stuff that's, frankly, in the juvenile world is, help, is happening in a number of places, but um, not so much in the adult world and not so much uh, crossing those lines. Um, I'm, I'm a member of St. John's Lutheran Church just mm -hmm. off the square. We are an overflow men's shelter. A lot of the folks coming are homeless and mentally ill. We run off the square club for chronically mentally ill people. A couple hundred people belong to the yeah. club, drop in. It's the only one in the city to, that I know of and costs less than 200000 It costs about 187000 or so a year. What I see happening instead is that we are studying this thing to death. There have been now, the county board has spent well over a million dollars, I think the fourth meet and hunt study about building a new jail. We know that mentally ill people shouldn't be in jail, and yet of the 780 beds, if 40% are mentally ill, that's 312 beds. We could close the city county building. And, and I'm told the journey, if, if somebody calls you weekends or evenings, you tell them to call the police. We, we are spending money in all the wrong ways. The county board has approved 400,000 for shoring up the locks and all the stuff that's wrong with the old jail when the thing should be closed. And it goes on and on and on and on. And I don't think you can just say that the county exec ought to be doing this. Um, it seems to me that the experts in the field, and Sheriff Mahoney is the only one who's managed to get some money to do the studies, but when are we going to start doing something? That's a, that's a, good, that's a really good comment. I share that totally with you because having lived in different communities, I've seen how, especially in a crisis community like New Orleans after Katrina, I've seen how communities can come together and how quickly when they put their minds to a certain goal, they can do it. What I've, what I've done over the last year since I've been here is attended a lot of meetings where people talk about the problem and talk and talk and talk and talk about the problem. And, and you know what? Every, every person I've met in Madison, including now this audience, um, kind of laughs about it. But it's serious as a heart attack, okay? I mean, our jail is filled with people who have mental illness. I'm a doer, okay? I, I want things done. I want, if we know the problem, I don't want to sit and talk about the problem. 
I want to talk about what's the solution to the problem. So I share your frustration. Um, there's new blood in the community, not, not just me, but there's others who are sharing my same feelings. And we are working together to try and solve four problems that we see. We need some political leadership around this too. And if it doesn't happen soon, we're going to do it. I mean, I'll step up. I know uh, Jackson Fonder, the CEO of Catholic Charities, who's building the Homeless Resource Center in Madison, is willing to work with me to do leadership problem-solving groups uh, around the, is the issues around mental health and the homeless. So thank you for that. That's, that's a great comment, and I share it. And people laugh all the time about it, but it's time to get going. So, Jim, did you want to comment on that at all? It, what struck me, or just the reaction I had, is, is that's one reason why it's so important for those authentic voices to be at the table. Because they, when I've been places where you have to look someone in the eye who's been through this, you know, we could talk all we want about how well we think we're doing. Right. Oftentimes, those making decisions are a little more removed. But boy, to hear a story about how a kid perceived the system functioning with them was, was like, I just couldn't get past that. I had to, I, look, we can't keep doing it this way. Or the parents. Yeah. The parents of adult children. I've talked to a parent of an adult children recently um, whose uh, son was incarcerated and is now in the judicial system for substance abuse issues. He was describing his son's experience as really horrendous. I, I sincerely believe that we have to really work hard to have people who are incarcerated, either in our jails or in our prison systems, have the vote. It's the most primal of democratic principles of engagement. And Loretta Lynch, our former attorney general, and others have concluded that it is really good for people who are incarcerated to partake in the election process because it helps integrate them into the society at large. So I do hope that the League of Women Voters and other community groups will work on getting those voting rights to people who are in jail. After committing a serious crime, who determines that the defendant having mental health problems should, should uh, avail that person to be placed in a mental health program. We work collaboratively with the DA's office on a few projects around domestic violence, I think, and some others. And then uh, it's ultimately, if they're in the system, it's up to the judge to decide um, based on recommendations, maybe assessments that Journey has done, uh, the person who's committed the crime and has a mental illness, of course, their desire to enter uh, into mental health services and recovery. I'm Nancy Abraham. I'm one of the founders of the local, the state, and the national alliances on mental illness. So just a few comments and a little bit of very brief history. I, too, agree that we have not kept up with the uh, population growth in Dane County. That has been an issue. It's been an issue among people in NAMI, Dane County. It's been an issue among other people. I think what we need to keep in mind, and it's hard to educate the public, is that people with the brain disorders of serious and persistent mental illness are not necessarily cured. Recovery, yes, if we have appropriate programs. So it means that people, including my own son, have been in treatment, but also in recovery, but in treatment for 43 years. And at this point, he's outlived the average age for people with schizophrenia by nine years. People tend to die on average by age 52 with the serious mental illnesses. And this is because of lack of care and treatment in many arenas of health and not having appropriate housing. So we need to keep in mind that more people keep entering the stream because each of us has a brain, and we don't know whose brain is going to become ill and disordered. So we have to plan for people long-term in continuity of care in programs that not only uh, 
are appropriate and well-run, but we also need to talk about evidence-based programs. And the ACT programs are evidence-based, and we need more of those in Dane County. We have PAC, the original, and then we have the CTAs. Right. And we have the community support programs. Right. So in the best of all worlds, no one with a mental illness should ever be in jail or prison. No one. And if we have appropriate care at the beginning, if we have the quote-unquote slots we need, then we're not going to have people in jails and prisons. There's so this, this is the bottom line. And it is true. We have not put the dollars in to community treatment programs to the extent that we need to when deinstitutionalization occurred. And it needed to occur. We needed to have people back in the community. So I'm just sort of saying we need to keep going. There's a, there's a thank you very much for that. And there's another, uh, there's a new program uh, that Journey is uh, pioneering in Wisconsin. Um, it's called uh, First Episode. Um, this is new, it's evidence-based. On the flip side of your son, our newly diagnosed youth, usually, young adults who have been diagnosed with a severe and persistent mental illness. I'll give you an anecdotal story because I always find this, I find it important to be able to tell a story. And I have many stories about how community-based programming, ACT teams, and now what I'm describing as first episode program, we call it PROPS at, at uh, Journey. Uh, we had a, uh, one of our first uh, consumers that came to Journey in this program was on a football scholarship, full football scholarship to the University of Wisconsin. And like this, like this brain disorder happens, he suddenly had a, a psychotic episode. Now, typically what happens, this is, I, I, only those parents that have been through this can understand the trauma that this has. You, have, you send your child off to school, to college, and you get a call that he is now never going to go back to school, okay? Um, and the entry wor world for this particular person is to go to the emergency room or to wind up in the jail because of hallucinations or delusions that, you know, something has, uh, you know, sparked, you know, uh, bad behavior of some kind. Um, with this particular individual, because we have this program, it's community-based, we work with the family, they see a psychiatrist. It's not at a medical facility, it's not at the hospital, it's at our program, it's in the community. This particular individual is still in school. He's still going to the University of Wisconsin. He will graduate from the University of Wisconsin. He can't play football anymore, but he will graduate. And I have met adult men who uh, their first episode was in college. I have a, someone who is now working for me who's been in the papers, has been on the news. He tells his story often in our community. He was a PhD candidate in biochemistry, I think. And he uh, tells the story. I was in jail. I was psychotic and I was in jail. And now, through the course of community-based programming, through our uh, clubhouse model, through Yahara House, where we work with people in support of employment, he works for me. He's one of our peer support specialists, and he counsels other people who are entering recovery or in recovery on how to be a productive member of society, get employed, keep yourself healthy, die eat right, exercise, take your medications, take your medications. So um, there, there is really just story after story of success doing this. And you're right, we have to keep up with it. And uh, now we have a program on both ends, which is wonderful, you know. Is that $60 million that goes back to the state from Dane County? Is that per year or doing doing that? The, the, that during that period from that period. 2000 over the last 15 years, 
this past year, so the number that's sticking in my head all day, every day, is $6.2 million. And every day I think about what we could have done as a community in terms of uh, eliminating the stigma of mental illness, improving access to uh, people who have severe mental illness, expanding our services into communities, and what I call in vivo, in the blood of the community, putting more of our services in different areas. Sun Prairie needs our services. Human services in many ways is the piggy bank for the county. Uh, if at the end of the year there are deficits in other areas, that's often where those dollars end up. So the county looks at the budget as a whole, and if there's a shortage over here, it's money that goes back to the general fund, and, or money in the human services goes to general, you know, kind of shifted around. I think the key point, they ought to stay in the area that they're saved in. Right. And then we also need to adopt a more outcomes-oriented um, uh, budgetary process. If Journey does evidence-based program and they produce data that is um, showing what their outcomes are, and if there's other community social service areas that can actually show uh, their outcomes, then we need to pay for those. And we need to stop paying for services that show no outcome. And um, it may be a hard decision. There may be a lot of politics involved. There may be a lot of love and emotion attached to certain programs in our community. But if we're really going to solve problems, we need to be more mindful about where our dollars go and how we spend them. And now we have things that we didn't have 30 years ago, like electronic health records and data reporting, quality initiatives. Uh, and I think those things can be attached to the budgetary process to improve our services and be more efficient with our dollars. Yeah, I, was, I wanted to ask about the money, too, because I, I keep thinking about the $6 million and the $60 million. Um, is it the county executive's budget? Who makes the decision to turn the money back to the general fund? Is it the county executive's budget? Is it the county board? Where do we lobby? Where are the pressure points for that? <laughs> I think it starts with the county executive. I mean, as far as I know, I'm not, you know, I, I don't know how that got, it's been so long when I've asked people about it, they've always said, that's how we always do it, you know. And I'm thinking, well, is it even legal? <laughs> how expensive is it to do community-based mental health treatment compared to wow. time in jail? I know what it is. I know the cost differentiation to doing community-based services as opposed to hospitalization. So let's take that number. 113 for you. Okay. So let's say um, let's say somebody gets hospitalized. Somebody with a severe and persistent mental illness gets hospitalized. They go to the emergency room. They have to be worked up, uh, or they can even have a direct admission sometimes if it's uh, if the hospital has that type of system to the psychiatric unit. And the average length of stay is about four to seven days. The cost is about 2500 a day, let's say. Somewhere between, depending on negotiated rates, 1200 to 2500 a day. We have a case rate per member per month rate that we've developed. That's around $1,075 a month. Okay? So I've seen... I've seen people who have a severe persistent mental illness get admitted to the hospital sometimes 14 times, not within a year, within a four-month four period or a six-month period. 14 times, okay? 14 times, let's say seven, eight thousand, let's say $10,000 per hospital stay. Do the math. We charge $1,500. Uh, or twelve, or a thousand, or whatever it will be, it's a great deal. So much so that I've convinced private insurance companies to buy our services that way. Okay, um, the other piece that's uh, you know everyone in the community has talked about this. The county executive knows about it. The director of health and human services knows about it. The Medicaid fee schedule in Wisconsin is one of the lowest in the country. Okay, so one thing that's happened that you need to know about, Journey Mental Health Center has been your safety net 
Organization for Community Mental Health for decades. If you need to be seen, don't worry about it. Journey will see you. When I got here last year, in the first quarter of 2016, we had lost $685,000 on straight Medicaid fee-for-service individuals. Okay? If we continued to do that, we would go out of business. So I had to put a stop to it. So right now, there are people who have straight Medicaid that we can't see. We have some slots that we've kept. We've continued to see people, but there are people now that do not and are being more disenfranchised from the healthcare system because the Medicaid reimbursement is so low. Uh, there are, and to, to change that is like an act of, literally an act of Congress, only it's the act of our assembly. Um, and it'll take two or three years. So there are other ways we're trying to fit our people into other um, mechanisms of reimbursement. And one way to do it is to pay in a value-based contract where we have skin in the game on our outcomes and what we do for people with severe mental illness, pay us that monthly case rate, just cover our costs. We're not for profit. We don't want to make a big margin or anything. We want our costs covered to serve the people that we, we care about and part of our mission. Well, I think we should thank we should thank our presenters. Thank everybody. In the You've audience. been listening to Jailing the Mentally Ill with speakers Ronald Lampert, President and CEO of Journey Mental Health Services, and Jim Moser, Deputy Director of Wisconsin Council on Children and Families. The talk took place on April fifth, two thousand seventeen, at the Capital Lakes Retirement Center in Madison, and was sponsored by the League of Women Voters of Dane County. There are study materials and handouts and a PowerPoint presentation on the League's website at lwvdanecounty.org. To find out what else the League is up to, go to their website at lwvdanecounty.org. The views expressed here are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the League of Women Voters of Dane County. Permission to rebroadcast this podcast is granted. If credit is given to the League of Women Voters of Dane County, and any editing does not alter the speaker's meaning.